Hello and welcome. Thanks for tuning in to the 82nd episode of Dot Mill Docs, the military health system's official podcast. I'm Elizabeth Lockwood. It's Thursday, October 22nd, 2009, and today the military health system continues to recognize October as Women's Health Month. As part of this important monthly theme, we've set up a special page at health.mil slash women's health. There you'll find a wealth of information about women's health and links to the many different programs and resources available to female health care beneficiaries in DOD's care. This week, we're talking to Dr. Sarah Page, Director of Simulation Education for the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the San Antonio Uniformed Services University Health Education Consortium. She is the Young Physician Representative for the Armed Forces District of American College of Obstetricians and Gynecology and an Assistant Professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. Dr. Page is joining us today to talk about prenatal care in the DOD, from immunizations and influenza to travel, exercise, and delivery. Dr. Page, welcome to Dot Mill Docs. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, let's get started with some general questions about prenatal care. Um, if I were pregnant, how early would I want to begin receiving prenatal care? Well, really, prenatal care begins before a pregnancy. So the best advice I can give you would be to consult with an obstetrician-gynecologist prior to conceiving uh, for what we call a preconceptual counseling visit. Um, having one of these preconceptual counseling visits really allows us to optimize your medical problems before conception, and we can optimize nutrition and fitness, make sure your immunizations are up to date, and make sure that we review your medication list uh, to convert you over to pregnancy-friendly medications. Okay. And if I were a woman in the military, would I have the same sort of medical care as I would if I were in the civilian community? Uh, absolutely. We see our patients just as frequently uh, during their pregnancy and after pregnancy as well. Okay. When do most women uh, deliver their babies? Uh, most women deliver their babies within one week of what we call their due date, um, which really isn't a deadline like a lot of people think, but really just an estimated time for when they will deliver Usually we base that on their menstrual period or an early ultrasound or perhaps an infertility procedure if they've had one done. And most women will deliver within either one week before or after that date. Okay. Are women in the military more likely then to have cesarean deliveries than women in the civilian community? No. Actually, our cesarean delivery rate in the military is very similar to the cesarean delivery rate that we see in the civilian community. Uh, in fact, several of our military treatment facilities boast very low cesarean delivery rates when compared with na national data. Are military hospitals ever used as teaching hospitals? Yes. Uh, although the majority of military treatment facilities are not teaching hospitals, several of our larger hospitals are teaching hospitals. And so some pregnant women will receive their prenatal care uh, at locations where they will encounter uh, resident physicians, medical students, nursing students. Uh, nurse midwifery students, and even technicians that are in training. Um, like I said, the larger tertiary care facilities are going to be the type of hospitals that are more likely to have this type of a training environment. Okay, but those obviously are going to be supervised just as in the regular civilian hospital. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, um, any time that we have residents or nursing students that are in training, they have to be closely supervised. Um, the OBGYN residency programs that we have in the military where there are seven different programs and are all fully accredited training programs through the Accreditation Council on Graduate Medical Education, which is actually a national uh, accrediting body. So they're the same accrediting body that would, uh, you know, certify programs at any other teaching university. 
Okay. Um, switching gears a little bit, I have some questions about immunizations and influenza while we're all concerned with H1N1. Um, what kinds of influen- in immunizations are safe during pregnancy? Well, what we call killed vaccines are safe during pregnancy. And what that means is that the virus that's used to create the vaccine are actually killed viruses. And so what a person's receiving in the vaccine is just sort of the outer shell of that, va- of that virus. Uh, live vaccines are a different type of vaccine where actually they are live viruses that have been weakened or attenuated. And those are the type of vaccines that we would not want you to receive during pregnancy. Um, some examples of live vaccines would be the flu mist vaccine, which is the nasal uh, vaccine, or measles, mumps, rubella vaccine would be another example of a live vaccine that we would not recommend during pregnancy. Okay. And in terms of H1N1, which is the talk of the town, um, how would you recommend pregnant women approach that vaccine? Uh, There are two types of H1N1 vaccines that are going to be available. uh, And in many centers, they're actually available already. One of those is is an H1N1 mist type of vaccine. So again, that would be a live vaccine. That would be the type we would not want pregnant women to receive. But we definitely advise pregnant women to receive a killed injectable Uh, H1N1 vaccine, which is just an injection type of vaccine. Okay. Um, And if someone did happen to get the influenza while they were pregnant, what what would they do or what could they expect? Well, the first advice that I can give pregnant women who do come in contact with H1N1 uh, infected persons is to make sure that they consult with their provider to make sure that they're receiving prophylaxis to try and prevent the infection. But if they unfortunately come down with the infection, then we definitely recommend treatment with Tamiflu uh, because the complications associated with influenza are much worse when they're in pregnancy, things like pneumonia, for example. Sure. Okay, so I'm pregnant, and is it, what, what do I do about exercise? Can I, can I continue with my regular routine? Well, for women who have a regular exercise routine prior to pregnancy, we, you can definitely continue your exercise routine throughout the pregnancy. Um, There are some complications that you should be aware of that you may run into further along in the pregnancy, for example, balance issues. So women who maybe run, you know, five or ten miles with no problem in the first trimester, as they get farther along, it's much more difficult for them to run such a long distance. Um, Biking is another one that really requires good balance, and so we recommend as you get farther along that you may want to consider doing those exercises on a stationary type of equipment where you can hold on and there's no risk of actually falling over on the equipment. Um, For women who aren't actively engaged in an exercise program, I wouldn't recommend that they initiate a new rigorous exercise program, you know, during their pregnancy. Okay. Um, And in terms of other types of things to do that's safe to continue doing when you're pregnant, what about travel? Uh, Traveling is actually safe for the majority of pregnancy. So as long as you have a normal, uncomplicated pregnancy, it's really safe to travel up until about 36 weeks. Um, At that point in gestation, it's, you know, you're more likely to deliver, and so we usually recommend that you stick around close to home. Okay, and if I were to travel, is there any special precaution I should take? One of the biggest risks to traveling long distance is if you're sitting in one stationary position for a prolonged period of time, It puts you at risk for forming what are called deep venous thrombosis, which are clots that can form in the legs. Uh, And pregnancy puts you at risk for that as well. So we definitely recommend frequent, like every one or two hours, stopping, getting out, walking around, stretching your legs. Uh, Or if you're on a long flight, for example, and you can't really get up and do that, then a good exercise is just to move the ankles and the calves around. 
so that you make sure you help to improve that blood flow back up out of the legs. Okay, and I've heard, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that that if you're pregnant, you should carry medical records with you? That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a good idea to carry your, your prenatal record with you so that just in case you have to see somebody that you're not used to seeing and they're not familiar with your medical history, then they've got easy access to all of your prenatal labs and everything that's happened in the pregnancy so far. Perfect. Uh, we're going to take a quick break for the Dot Mill Docs Health Beat, news and information from the military health system. We'll be back in a minute with more from Dr. Page on prenatal care and delivery options in the DOD. Dot Mill Docs Health Beat. The military health system has created a webpage at health.mil slash flu to help you find the resources you need to protect yourself and those in your care from influenza during the 2009-2010 flu season. Resources linked to from the page answer questions about the H1N1 flu virus, also known as swine flu, as well as seasonal flu. These are the two types of flu that present the largest threat to humans during this flu season. Once again, the page is health.mil slash flu. In other news, relying on an independent study by the Institute of Medicine on Agent Orange exposure, Secretary of Veterans Affairs Eric K. Shinseki decided to establish a service connection for Vietnam veterans with B-cell leukemias such as hairy cell leukemia and Parkinson's disease. Veterans who served in the Vietnam War and who have a presumed illness do not have to prove an association between their illnesses and their military service. This presumption simplifies and speeds up the application process for benefits. Additional information about Agent Orange and VA's services and programs for veterans exposed to the chemical are available at va.gov slash Agent Orange. Finally, eight wounded warriors have returned to the combat zone in Iraq where they were injured. This is the second group of wounded warriors to participate in Operation Proper Exit, a program set up to help these wounded warriors complete their mission and find a sense of closure. It's an important part of the veterans' journey back to health. This week, the veterans are also traveling to many of the exact places where they received injuries so that they can see firsthand what progress their sacrifices and those of their comrades have brought to Iraq. That's your .mil docs health beat. For more on these stories, visit health.mil. For the Military Health System, I'm Russell Carlson. All right, welcome back to .mil docs. Our guest today is Dr. Sarah Page, Director of Simulation Education for the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the San Antonio Uniformed Services University Health Education Consortium. Dr. Page, before the break, we were talking about prenatal care in the DOD. Let's switch gears a little and look at how expectant mothers can anticipate the delivery process. Do you have any overarching tips on how to prepare for delivery? Well, probably one of the best things people can do to prepare for delivery is make sure that they take a a tour of the labor and delivery where they're planning to deliver. And I can't emphasize that enough. You know, there's nothing worse than coming in at 2 o'clock in the morning with painful contractions and you're not really sure where you're going and you haven't seen the rooms yet. Um, So making sure they arrange a tour of labor and delivery is really important, um, and preferably with the person that's going to be in their delivery with them, whether that's a significant other or a family member or friend. Uh, and then the other thing, of course, is to pack a bag ahead of time well in advance, probably around 32 weeks or so. Uh, most women should have a bag packed that's just ready to go at any time. Okay. Um, once they are in the delivery room, are there any types of rules mandated by the military about how many people can be with you during delivery? Uh, That's a great question. Actually, nowadays it's so common for women to want to have multiple family members in their delivery, uh, and it's really no different in the military than it is in the outside. Um, We're trying to really emphasize family-centered care. 
uh, and we have large birthing centers in, in many of our hospitals that can accommodate more family members. Um, and, of course, it's, it's going to be hospital-specific to a certain degree as far as how much space is available and whether they may have stipulations. But in general, we try to accommodate as many family members as a woman would like in her delivery, provided that there's no complications occurring or, sure. um, you know, uh, emergency-type situation where we need to remove people out of the room to create more space for equipment and for other hospital personnel. Um, I do want to point out, you know, obviously cesarean deliveries are a little bit different because that's going to involve going to the operating room. And so, it, you know, if a woman is going to have a cesarean delivery, in general, most places are going to limit the number of attendants in the room to just one. Okay. Um, what kinds of accommodations can you make for alternate positions, like a birthing ball or birthing bar? Uh, most of our centers do have those types of equipment available, a birthing ball or birthing bar. Uh, and the most important thing for a patient to do is actually talk with her provider before delivery to make sure that she's familiar with what kind of accommodations the, the birthing center will be able to, to provide her with. Um, so we, we generally advise people to create what's called a birthing plan, which is sort of their goals for the birthing process and what kind of things they would like, what types of positions they would like to use, um, you know, whether they would like to use additional equipment like a birthing ball. And then the provider can review that with them in advance and let them know what kinds of things we'd be able to accommodate for them. Okay. And if I um, wanted to request an induction of labor, is there any sort of rules around that? Well, in general, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists doesn't really encourage elective inductions of labor. Now, often we have to do inductions of labor for medical reasons, and certainly that would be no different within the military than it would on the outside. Uh, but as far as elective inductions of labor, typically the reason that those are considered on a case-by-case -case basis would be for things like deployments um, or perhaps planning to bring family members into town, et cetera. Um, and just like it would be in the civilian sector, there's, you know, it's really sort of a provider-dependent uh, decision along with the, with the pregnant woman as far as deciding whether that's a reasonable option for her. So any woman that is interested in an induction of labor electively should really review that with her provider. Um, there's not a direct rule from the Department of Defense regarding, you know, how or when we can do that. Okay. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of our... our um military wives are facing husbands or significant others who are deployed. What does that feel like in the DOD? Or what kinds of rules are in place to help out with prenatal care? Yeah, we are definitely uh, seeing that more and more frequently now. So unfortunately, many women do, you know, have to deliver while their spouse is away. Um, probably the best way to plan for that is to try and identify either a family member or a friend or some type of support person that can agree to be with them throughout their prenatal care and also for the delivery itself. And I actually encourage my patients to bring that support person with them to all of their prenatal visits so that we all sort of establish a rapport together and they feel more involved in the, in the patient's care that way and uh, they're better able to support them during the delivery. But absolutely identifying that as early as possible in the pregnancy, um, you know, is my best advice. Okay. And one final question. Um, if, if a woman is single and pregnant or is a dependent daughter or active duty member, does the DOD still offer the same resources to her as, she, as they would to a military wife? They do, actually. She is still um, definitely eligible for all of her prenatal care and delivery care uh, and her postpartum care as well, uh, whether she's single or married, as long as she's a beneficiary. Um, the one time it comes in 
it's it, where it's a little bit complicated, I guess, is if it's a dependent daughter who's receiving obstetric care, the baby actually um, doesn't receive the same eligibility once born because then they're not directly a uh, military beneficiary in some cases. And so what we encourage our patients in that situation to do is actually to establish um, designation status for the baby to re- to receive you know, sort of their immunizations and their initial follow-up visit in the military treatment facility after birth uh, before they start to develop a new relationship with an outside pediatrician. Okay. Well, it sounds like the DOD offers a host of options and support facilities for women beneficiaries seeking prenatal care. Um, Dr. Page, I want to thank you so much for speaking with us here today at Dotmill Docs. Well, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. That does it for us this week on Dot Mill Docs. Once again, please visit health.mil slash women's health for more information and resources about women's health care in the DOD. As part of the military health system's commitment to providing the best information, support, and resources for service members and their families, health.mil has begun to feature monthly warrior care themes. These themes will focus coverage on specific issues that are of interest to our wounded warriors, as well as all service members, at home and abroad. This month's theme is physical therapy. Visit health.mil slash warrior care to learn more about physical therapy programs across the DOD. Dotmill Docs will be back on Thursday of next week when we talk with Major Heather Johnson about women's heart disease, which is the single leading cause of death for American women. Major Johnson is a family nurse practitioner and an assistant professor at the Graduate School of Nursing, Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. Until then, thanks for listening. This program is a product of the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, Military Health System. Dotmill Docs features the most relevant military health topics important to you and your family. If you have questions or topics you'd like to see on an upcoming episode, send us an email at dotmildocs at tma.osd.mil. That's D-O-T-M-I-L-D-O-C-S at tma.osd.mil. Visit health.mil for more episodes. 